Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Corporate today with Trent Mao, who's the CEO of First Cobalt TSXB. Uh, listed uh, cobalt refiner and potential explorer. And if you want our thoughts and opinions on the conversation, the opportunity ahead of them, and indeed the company itself, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, where you'll also find detailed company reports, commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of companies and commodities. There are training videos, there's summaries of other interviews that we've done to save you a little bit of time. And of course, there's a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. So go there and join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Trent, how are you doing? Very well. Nice to see you, Matthew. Good to have you on the show. First time we've met, first time we've spoken. So looking forward to this. In fact, we were meant to speak a long time ago, but here we are today. So that's fine. Where are you? I am sitting in my office in downtown Toronto. But only you, from what I hear. Only me. Yeah, yeah. We're actually in a WeWork environment. So in this period that we're in, it's actually not a not an unsafe environment because uh, we're running at about 5% capacity across this office. Right, better an internet connection as well, I suspect. Good, good, good. Yeah. Um, well, look, why don't we kick off, give us that one minute overview of the business and I'll pick it up from there. Sure, sure. Cobalt's uh, an, an, an essential ingredient in batteries and, and specifically in electric vehicles. So we started this company about three and a half years ago, looking for cobalt for, for the EV revolution, as I like to call it. And three and a half years later, we've effectively merged four companies into one to create a bit of scale. And our, our near-term catalysts involve cobalt refining. We've got a refinery that's built and permitted that we, we can talk about. And then we've got some cobalt mineral assets. Uh, and all of this is in North America. So a little bit of a unique spin for a, a supply chain that's found elsewhere. You picked a really difficult time to get into cobalt, didn't you? <laughs> I, I came in um, at a fantastic time, right? We were, we were a proxy, one of a two or three proxies for the commodity. And we had, um, it was wonderful. 2017, early 18 was great. And then, yeah, we promptly fell into a two-year bear market and from which we're, we're just starting to come out now. So, you know, fortunately got the team, got the assets, raised the money uh, before the market went south. And we've been, we've been quiet for 24 months now, uh, quiet at least on the market side, but pretty busy pushing our asset forward. Okay, fine. Well, we'll get into that in a second, but I'm... Um... I'm always interested in what, what, what the management team um, behave like, what they're thinking, how they approach problems, how they solve problems. So it might be worth explaining three and a half years ago what you actually set out to do on day one and why you've had to merge four companies together to kind of keep it on the road. That's actually a good question. And there have been, um, by necessity, a couple of pivots in our strategy. So when we started the company, uh, candidly, this was a shell company, uh, some Vancouver promoters who Came together to try and look. We got a we got a company and a name, some liquidity, and some money. We just need people and assets, uh, literally. And so I was first guy in the door and uh, with an idea. Now they're they're long gone. We put together a, a team of operators uh, that have all come out of bigger companies like myself. And uh, initially, we were focused on what we call the, the Canadian Cobalt Camp. So this is Canada's oldest hard rock mining district, mined mostly for silver, but a lot of cobalt. And we went looking, as we've done in the gold space, and I've done it in my career. You go to old underground high-grade deposits and try to see if you can reconceive of these things as a larger open pit, low-grade, high tonnage operations. Um, and so success, I, I think the success in the Cobalt Camp is still going to be underground high-grade. So we, we merged three companies together to consolidate uh, a huge district, 100 square kilometers that we control, 50 fast-producing mines. Um, and, and, but then we saw something, frankly, more attractive from a mineral exploration potential, and that was in Idaho. 
Idaho being one of the only places in the world you can get primary cobalt. So uh, acquired U.S. cobalt, got our hands on the Iron Creek Project, which is the flagship mineral uh, exploration deposit. But as cobalt started to, um, to turn, to turn south, drilling is expensive, and we doubled down on our efforts on our refinery in Canada. And, uh, and that's paid off tremendously, partnership with Glencore, and, uh, and that has been the focus for the last two years with explorations coming back in favor. I think we'll be back at the drill by next summer. Okay, so tell us about the U.S. Um, cobalt uh, asset, if you don't mind, because I want to try and understand what's been going on there. Yeah, when, when we looked around the world, so our, our head of exploration, Frank Santaguida, came out of First Quantum. He lived around the world, worked around the world. He lived in Zambia and worked in the Congo, which is where you know, two-thirds of cobalt comes from today. And so we looked We looked in the Congo. We, we spent the first six months of our existence uh, visiting, uh, negotiating assets. It's just too hard. It's hard for the big guys, and it didn't make a lot of sense for our investors to expose ourselves to that risk. So thereafter, where do you find cobalt? Well, it's a byproduct. It's a byproduct of nickel and copper operations. So you can look in Chile. Uh, you can look in Australia. You can even look in parts of Sweden and the Czech Republic. Uh, we ended up coming right back into our own backyard. And, and cobalt is hard to find. It's hard to find uh, in any meaningful bit of tonnage operations. And it's usually a, an afterthought to your development decisions on nickel and nickel and copper. But Idaho, the world over, is is particularly unique. Uh, so we've got the hydrothermal system in a sedimentary basin where you've got primary cobalt and the byproduct is copper. So the inverse of even what you would see in the DRC. Now, these, these are not nearly as big as the Congolese uh, plays. But this has been a deposit that had a, had a bit of history. Hannah Mining, Naranda Mining, people had drilled it. We had 600 meters of addits. We had a historic resource. 95% uh, of our drill holes were mineralized, maybe maybe more, over big widths, 10, 20, 30 meters. And so um, with that kind of success rate, it was hard not to turn our sights on that. So we've been drilling it out. Um, you know, we got about 5 million tons uh, indicated and inferred combined at some high grades, and uh, we haven't seen the extents of it yet. So we stopped merely on account of a, of a tough market, but we want to keep it going. I, I really think Idaho has got a unique role to play, not just in America, but for an ex, ex I guess, ex-African supply of cobalt in the years ahead. Yeah, Idaho is interesting. I mean, we've had um, Javois mining on here, and they've also got their Idaho uh, asset too. I mean, have you guys had conversations about doing something together? We, um, not, not, not recently. I, on the previous management team, there was um, a unique, if unfortunate, uh, trait of, of North American cobalt deposits is most of them have a lot of arsenic and it creates a problem. And so under previous management, e-cobalt had that, had that issue, permitted deposit. Where do I send my concentrate when you've got 13, 15% cobalt or sorry, arsenic or more. And we have the refinery, a refinery, the only one on the continent that has the permits and the autoclave. And it would have been a good match. Um, we've each taken different paths for, for strategic reasons. And so we, we've gone our, our separate ways. We're a little different. Um, for reasons we don't fully understand, our deposit is not uh, does not contain arsenic. We're in a pyrite-hosted uh, uh, system uh, for for our cobalt, so it's it's unique, frankly, across the cobalt belt. But you know, Gerbois is located adjacent the old Blackbird mine, which uh, which was the one big American producer um, back well, probably going going 40, 40 years or so, but beginning of the nineteen hundreds, it started producing. So there is a history of mining there. Um, I think what they're doing is uh, is interesting and it's it's necessary. I think there's there's room for us and a lot more, frankly, just to supply American needs. I mean, well, the only reason I ask is obviously they're ex uh, Glencore guys. You're partnering with Glencore. Just wondered if there's any chance of a conversation further down the line as a result of that. You never know. I mean, I, I'm not married. I'm not here for a day job. I'm a shareholder. I'm here to create value. 
uh, I see some opportunity here in the near term to get ourselves to cash light. It won't surprise you to hear that I think my stock is tremendously undervalued. Um, so I, I'd like to do, uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, and and, and it's, it's been a tough couple of years. I've got guys, shareholders that are waiting on some catalysts and some of them are weeks away, a few of them are months away. So we're just so close. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do something for my shareholders here. Thereafter, you know, people wanna do something bigger or get me out of the way, that's absolutely fine. Okay. Um, I think that'll be an interesting one to come back to uh, when we speak next, I, I, I suspect. Um, so you, you, you say you, you've had to adapt, you've had to be agile in your thinking because the market has changed, has not been kind to you after you started uh, you know, the business. Um, refining seems to be the current thought as to how the, the near-term revenue comes into the company. Uh, spending money under the ground isn't. So, you know, what, what was that conversation like? Because obviously it probably wasn't that way around when you first uh, started to kick this thing off, right? Yeah, the market wanted to see, you know, pounds on the ground uh, back in the uh, in the heyday of the cobalt market. And as that sold off, the, the, the you know, the drill, I mean, in, in Ontario, our, our all-in costs were under $100 a meter, but they were a fair bit more in Idaho, uh, topography and whatnot. So, you know, converting tons in a market that was frankly selling a cobalt plate didn't make a lot of sense. Um, it was actually one of my big shareholders who said, Trent, you got that refinery there. You should be looking at that. And uh, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give others credit. Um, when we finally did turn our, our minds to that, there was a real opportunity. We've got an asset here that's got, you know, kind of 90 million US of historic investment. It's built, it's permitted, built small. Um, and, and when you look at that landscape, it's a, it's a China story. It's 80% of refined cobalt, cobalt sulfate that goes in the batteries is coming out of China. Uh, thereafter, you're looking at uh, Sumitomo in Japan, you're looking at Yumacore in Finland, and that's it. And so when you look at the EV market growing, I read 16% CAGR over the next five or six years, seven years, um, that, that's, uh, that's nearly a tripling of the market. So, so for us to look at refining capabilities and how you're going to respond to those demands, particularly in EVs, because that's, that's the dominant dominant usage now for cobalt. Uh, we just started doing engineering studies, some net testing, and basically trying to replicate the Chinese model to get ourselves off the ground. And it's been quite successful and we're we're getting close to a construction decision here. Okay, but you're gonna need to be able to feed it and you're gonna need to be able to make some money from it. And in the current climate, it's still not quite there yet. So that decision-making is yeah. gonna be hampered until that kind of price discovery comes back. So. What do you do in the meantime? Do you just keep things ticking along? I mean, have you got enough cash to do that? I mean, where's your head at? Yeah, no, we're, we're actually in good shape. Um, so, so the, uh, I would call it North America, call it a V8 moment for us. Was, you know, where do you get the feed, right? We've got this refinery sitting in Canada where across the border from Michigan and all the US uh, auto plants. And there is no North American cobalt refining to speak of. It's the byproduct out of Sudbury and, and Boise's Bay, but what, what do you do with this facility? And, and so you look at, well, what's, what's Umacore in Finland doing? What are the Chinese doing? It's, it's, it's the same playbook. You're taking cobalt hydroxide out of the DRC and you're processing that. Why? Because within country, this is the African copper belt. You're making the copper cathodes in the country, selling it to market. But through in part, through the, uh, the belt and road policies of China, the cobalt hydroxide uh, is not beneficiated. It's, you know, it's semi tree it's a semi-finished good but it's refined out of country and all that infrastructure has been set up in China. So it kind of paves the way for um, a market that's virtually hundred percent exported. And so for us, it was, let's just take a play out of that book. We've got a trade war going on. We've got concerns over 
localization of supply chains only magnified with COVID in the conversations that we underline that. And so for us, it's, yeah, let's, let's do like the Chinese and bring it here to this side of the world where we can service Europe in the short term more competitively and then eventually be the only one here on the continent. Now, to your point, Matthew, about, uh, about pricing, you're, you're buying the feed based on a fast market's quote, uh, payability of the, of the, of the prevailing metal price is the cost of your, of your input. And so on the downside, you do have some margin protections there. You're not fully exposed. Likewise, perhaps you're, you're capped a bit on the upside as well. But for a startup, the feed is there. I, I got to say the interest is quite strong in, in all the producers to, to try to send product X China again for diversity. So, so we're in good shape. So we're not slowing down. Uh, quite the opposite. I think you're going to see some announcements from us here in the next two or three months and even in the next few weeks in terms of how we move ourselves to a construction uh, point uh, in, in early next summer. Okay. So, so just be clear with me. The feed is coming from where? Yeah, the feed will be coming from the DRC. And, uh, and initially, and I should, I, yeah, let me explain that a bit, the commercial strategy that we entered into. So we, we got our hands on some feed from the Congo. It's a metallurgic and bench scale net testing. And, and lo and behold, I mean, this is beautiful material. It, it leaches really, really well. And ours is a hydrometallurgical plant. So it's a leach solvent extraction. And then you crystallize the cobalt into this pink powder, the chemical form that goes into a battery. Um, there's no better product on the planet. And that's where most of the product is coming from. So we, I went to Shanghai oh, about a year and a half ago at a big, a big uh, metals conference, cobalt conference, and met with all the big players. And these are big players. You know, they were talking Glencore and ERG and China Mali and, and some of the big, uh, the big refiners. And so we're the, the minnow here in the big ocean um, and, and just really happy with the tenor of conversation. And so we engaged in a bunch of conversations and we initially landed on a strategic relationship with Glencore where we were going to be exclusive to them. Uh, we would toll treat. They would provide the feed. They'd market the product. They'd finance the project. Um, but through time, our strategic relationship has evolved to something a little less. Uh, we're actually going to be buying feed from them. We're going to sourcing, sourcing our own capital. And so as a, as a company where we are as of you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, we'll be still working with Glencore, but we'll be buying from multiple mine sources, probably two, and marketing the product our own and financing it ourselves. So we kind of come out from a, a big brother relationship to a strategic uh, partnership that's going to allow us to be something a little more to our shareholders. Okay, so talk to me about the ESG component here, because you know most people, when you talk about cobalt, they go DLC, verboten, no one wants it, right? And it's the same when you're talking about automotive manufacturers, they want to understand this complete supply chain, and they've got to sell that to their end buyers as well. So right now, DRC, you feel that you can work with them, like I know other people do, but it's not going to affect your business further down the line um, or your ability to do business with them further down the line because it's coming from the DRC. That's that's not a problem. Yeah, that's, that's an important point. Uh, there are... There are not many OEMs that, 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 that won't deal with the DRC. It's just, it's just, uh, it's what Mother Nature gave us. And that's where the product is coming from. So, uh, BMW has, has, is the exception. Uh, they're going to take metal alloy, dissolve it and make that into a, uh, in, into a sulfate for their batteries. Uh, it's more costly. Uh, most of the OEMs have decided to, well, they, not much of a choice. We've got to accept the DRC as part of our supply chain. But then how do you deal with it from an ESG perspective? So there's, you know, two parts to, to the ESG mandate here. One uh, you know, specific to the cobalt and the DRC is just responsible sourcing. And so artisanal mining is the trouble spot there where you've got Chinese traders and buyers uh, in country, you've got blending of material. How do you certify provenance of your material? So our answer to that is we, you know, I, I, I worked at Barrick and, and like my team, we, we worked around the world. And, you know, when you're a big company with a big operation, you carry the same standards anywhere you go. 
And so our solution is not not to turn our backs on artisanal mining, but it's really recognized as a small company. We just we're not big enough to make a make the change at that level. It's happening. Um, our focus is going to be to buy from the big commercial operations. Uh, ideally, uh, this is the path we're, we're we're firmly on right now. Buy from two of the biggest cobalt operations in the DRC. Uh, no intermediary. So you're going from mine site to our refinery, so that we can a ref, uh, certify our refinery under the Responsible Minerals Initiatives, which follows the OECD sourcing guidelines. And then we can warranty to our, our OEM customers um, that we will never embarrass them. Their brand will never be tainted by virtue of the product coming out of a refinery. So that's, that's absolutely essential uh, as, a, as a first point. And then the other part of the ESG is, is what, what everybody else is having to deal with in the world. What's your footprint? What is your environmental footprint? And on that, once again, we, we rank very, very favorably compared to the Chinese peers that we're would be would be benchmarked against. Okay, I mean it's a really important point because the, the, of of all the commodities, this is the one that seems to be tainted most by you know issues, issues around child labour, etc. But at the end of the day, do you think it's it's also a case of well, we need to make money, and there's always going to be a buyer for it, so it doesn't really matter, does it? Yeah, I think I think that um, you know we're all human. I'm a dad, right? I got an eight and a ten year old kid. Um, Amnesty International did a really good job, and Sky uh, TV back in I think it was 17, 2017. And the campaign they ran was you know, how much child labor is in your phone. And it put Apple and it put Samsung on the spot, uh, embarrassed industry, as it, and as it should, right? And I remember telling my daughter, I still get choked up, telling my daughter, uh, going to her class talking about mining and what mining can do. is in, in the context of a children's rights discussion, children's rights in Canada, which is pretty different from children's rights in the DRC. But, you know, children have different problems in different environments. And uh, showing a, a, a movie of this boy, seven-year-old, she was seven at the time, Seven-year-old boy, a clip of him working in the mines or in the you know sorting cobalt, carrying bags, and threatened to be beaten, and, uh, and pausing the movie and telling her like, "Does anybody did anybody catch his name?" And a couple of people did. Anybody catch how old he was? They all got it right, same age as us. And I pointed to an empty desk. I said, "That kid should be right there, not out there." And so, you know, all the all this, not to get too emotional about it, but uh, yeah, I do care. I do care about that, and uh, and I think I think uh, Glenn, the Glencores of the world do care about that as well. And so there is look at Tesla, Glencore, ERG, and others have formed artisanal mining uh, initiatives. The the uh, artisanal mining alliance being the biggest one, uh, where we're going to try to empower. Way we as they uh, we're not a part of it, but just try to empower um, co-ops to to go out and do this properly. Allow Congolese to be a part of their mineral extraction process. Uh, but in the right way, with reflective vests and safety standards and, and major requirements and things of that nature. So I think I think people do care. Um, but look, yeah, for the sake of money, there's always going to be the bad actors. And, and so for us, when you look at that supply chain, it comes to knowing where the minerals come from and keeping as few intermediaries as you can in between the mine head and the, uh, and the OEM as possible. Okay. So you're 50 million market cap company. I mean, how much cash have you got? We've got... Uh, today we're sitting at about four and a half million dollars Canadian. Right, and that's going to last how long? It'll last us about about a year's time uh, without the capex that we're in the process of raising now for the the refinery. Right. Okay. So talk to me about what you think is happening in the marketplace because you know we we've seen Tesla Day and people talking. About, oh, we're going to take out cobalt. We're going to take out the nickel. We're going to, you know, there's going to be lots of different battery designs and types for all sorts of use cases out there. So, so I suspect we're going to need all of the above. So I don't want to have the conversation about has, has cobalt, is cobalt going to be in batteries? But um, the demand side of things, you've got to have a view on that one, see, because, yeah. you know, you've got to make decisions about when you 
get this um, project up and running, when when you go out for the financing for it, when you're going to need to raise some capital for your G&A, et cetera. Because uh, you're right, it's been a tough three and a half years. So what's your take on the market at the moment, realistically, honestly? Yes, real, yeah, re- realistically, if you look at what could weigh on the cobalt market on a go forward, we do have, I mean, the battery chemistry, dominant battery chemistry is nickel, cobalt, manganese, NCM. And, and the, the, the trade-off has always been, look, we've got to get more nickel in there because nickel gives us the energy density. Nickel will therefore give us, give us the range. But you need the cobalt for the integrity of the battery, just the stability. And that's heat propagation, fires, uh, as well as the, the 10-year warranty. And so there is the trade-off. But we have, as an industry, successfully lowered the amount of cobalt. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing because it makes the batteries more affordable and it gives you the range, it addresses range anxiety. You know, going, going to zero is a different, is a different animal. Uh, and so in China, the low-end batteries are the LFP, lithium iron phosphate and they're getting better as well you're getting you know instead of getting 80 kilometers you're getting 200 kilometers of range and and, and so you're going to see uh, more competition at the low end of the market with lfp batteries we are thrifting as i mentioned earlier the ncms are going to have less cobalt in them but what's the flip side well we got 5g we got all the work from home devices that we're all buying we got e-scooters and we got e-bikes and then of course the big the big elephant in the room here what's the penetration rate for evs so glencore would tell you i think like the annual report from a year ago ivan was saying you know, we're going to go from about 2% global penetration rate in 20, 2020 to 10% in 2025. Well, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge growth rate. Um, Benchmark Minerals would, would tell you that if you look at, even with all that thrifting that I mentioned, LFPs and 811 cathodes, uh, they still see uh, EVs or batteries as a category uh, increasing from 57% of total demand to 72% over the next five years. And so, you know, the bull case has certainly been articulated. I'll let people draw their own conclusions. If you don't believe in cobalt, if you don't believe in EVs, you know, you shouldn't be looking at first cobalt. Um, like I think, I think this is one of these mega trends, one of these generational shifts. Uh, and we're at the early days. Now, th- those of your listeners that are or viewers who are in Europe will get it, right? I mean, Europe, I think at some point this summer with COVID, your uh, sales were down, passenger sales down 25%, EVs were 2x. Now there's a carrot and stick, right? There's incentives to buy the vehicles and the penalties for emissions and whatnot. But wow, nobody thought Europe would turn on as fast as it did this year. Yeah, lots of incentives. There's going to be carbon taxes. There's all sorts of um, drivers from from governments uh, and support from government for sure. From well, not just Europe, but China, US too. Um, we are seeing that. But how does a small company like you survive to take advantage of it? Because you say you've got a you've got a refinery. It's a small refinery. Is it big enough? You've done some M&A, so you've got the capability and expertise to do that. What else are you going to need to do to be meaningful? Yeah, so what, what you're going to see from us uh, with this change in commercial construct with Glencore, um, over the coming weeks, uh, hoping to lock up two feed contracts. So I want to show the market that we're going to be able to fill this refinery up. Uh, we've got a financing process that's been on hold while we're waiting for the commercial contracts to, to come to fruition. Um, no longer uh, Glencore-led financing, which which is a testament, I think, to the interest. We're talking to private equity firms, but also a couple of big international banks. Um, so people do want to get behind this. This, this could be a green loan. Uh, it's a sustainable investment, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got you know four, maybe five parties that are kind of in a second round financing. So line up the financing is next. Offtake, people want to see that big offtake contract or two with the OEMs that'll come. Now, what that's going to look like in, I would say, 18 months from now when we when we plan the commission, uh, is a plant that goes from you know nominal today 12 ton a day throughput to 55, yielding 5,000 tons of cobalt units per annum. So you know you're talking four or five percent of the total market, and the only North American supply. So 
you know, our, 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 our cash flow, our, our, our annual cash flow pre-tax is equivalent, that's projected, uh, is equivalent to our current market cap. And so we haven't even talked about our mineral exploration assets and what kind of multiple you put on the cash flows. So we're, we're, we're getting there. We're on our, we're on our way. And I think um, investors that have been following us have been uh, waiting for news for many, many months. I would say we're on the cusp of some big announcements here end of Q4 and into Q1 that will really paint the picture of how we're going to move forward. My, my goal just to articulate it, Matthew, would be to let's get the fee contracts done in Q4. Let's, um, let's get a handle on this financing. I don't know what that looks like, but announce something on the financing side of Q1. And let's move to a construction decision here. It's not a decision. Commencement of construction in, in June. And uh, we're projecting roughly a 12-month construction timeline. Maybe it's a little longer before we can commission. So it's a pretty compressed timeline here to get ourselves where we want to go. Right. It's interesting. So I'm not sure, quite sure if it's horse before the cart or, or how do the contracts come first or the, do the financing discussions happen first? You can't do one without the other, it seems. Difficult. Yeah. When you look at how we're going to tie it all together, is we do have a metal trader, a couple of firms we're talking to that are going to provide that backstop that our lenders need. And so we'll have our fee contracts together soon. We've got the lenders, but the OEM, those offtake contracts are going to take a little bit longer. And so in order to move the financing forward, I'll have a trader standing by saying, look, we'll take 100% of all the product pending placement under OEM and long-term arrangements so that we can get the financing locked in and move ahead with that construction. When you, when you do get that under your belt and out of the way, the, the exploration component, because you're talking about you know 100 plus historic silver cobalt mines in the Canadian cobalt camp. What does that mean? I mean, you've, you've got 100%, do you own some of that, all of it? What's the opportunity? Yeah, I mean, our count, and it's hard because this was 1904, building a railway, you know, vein propagated its surface, and all of a sudden, it was like a Klondike gold rush. We had 10,000 prospectors. And through time, so 1904 through, yeah, well, 60s, but a couple of them went to the 80s, uh, you had about 104 different mining operations. Some of these were meaningful. Nico Eagle got their start there. Tech had a big underground mine there. Some of them were smaller. It would have been you and I in a pickaxe, right, following a vein and, and getting native silver out of the ground. So through time, you know, this, this cobalt embayment up in Ontario, uh, in one of the Canadian provinces, it mined 600 million ounces of silver and, and 50 million pounds of cobalt as a byproduct and often not necessarily a desirable one. It was an indicator mineral, trace mineral to know that, okay, we're, we're in the right area. Um, where we are now, we drilled that fairly extensively in 1718, uh, 12 different targets, 30,000 meters, $10 million the first modern geoscience applied to the area. So I would say we fell short on our goal of let's, let's find a, let's find a big open pit. Um, what we did find though is a reinterpretation of the geology. We've got to your, to answer your question directly, we own 50 of the 104 past producing mines. Uh, we've got a lot of high grade targets and, and what's happened though, of course, is, you know, cobalt's half the price it was silver is double the price it was when we were drilling it. So guess what? we got a lot of silver players knocking on our door, looking to, buy it, partner with us. And given that it's third rung, I guess, in our suite of assets, it's refinery, and then it's Iron Creek, Idaho, and then it's the Ontario Plate. You, you might see us look to monetize some of this uh, if we can either, you know, raise some capital for the refinery or or, or go along for the ride on an earn-in and, and, and ride the coattails of a, of a silver miner. Silver is, you know, it's high-grade vein-style mineralization. You got to be very diligent, very judicious. We were going at it with a different uh, approach. As we go back and it's at around two, uh, we announced in geophysics today, you, know, you do have to follow the structures more closely uh, if you're going to follow up on that style of mineralization. So you'll, you'll have some news. I think it's going to be as much, at least as much silver news as there will cobalt though in Ontario. That's very topical. Why not? 
Um, what do you know about that? Because you took that's a big chunk of change. You mentioned thirty million bucks spent, right? Plus whatever the previous owners spent. So it must be a lot of data. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Thirty. Maybe I got it wrong. Ten million dollars to spend thirty thousand meters of drilling. So, <sighs> sorry. You know, they, no. They, no. Get that wrong. It would probably more likely me. More likely me. Uh, okay. So, but there's still that. The, the question stays the same. That still oh, sounds like oh, a, a lot it, of information. It is. Yeah. I mean, you know, Nico Eagle um, is still out there. The next at a biggest partner, but it's a reclamation play for them, right? They're, they're holding costs. Um, there has been no modern geoscience. So the geophysics, uh, the mapping, the, the sampling, understanding structure, there is a lot of uh, assembly of information, mapping old, old adits, um, known veins, and then overlaying that with some modern work, including, of course, ultimately you got to drill it. And so we've got the, probably the only digit, we, we do know, the only digitized database of a very prospective silver cobalt district. Um, you know, again, we, we 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 hopped over to Idaho because we were hitting everything was everything was cobalt. Um, I think we've got a model, a deposit model here that uh, that is going to inform us. We're going to do a little geophysics now to follow up on the mined areas up in the northern part of the camp, an area we call Kerr Kerr Lake. Um, and and based on that, yeah, I think the opportunity in this camp, I mean, it's 100 square kilometers, the northern and southern extents of the cobalt camp were mined because, of course, you had veins propagating the surface. Uh, back in the early 1900s, anything under cover basically went unmined and that's the central part of the camp. So with the knowledge that we have acquired over our first sort of year and a bit of, uh, of exploration, the idea is to apply those tools to see if we can get the blind discoveries. And instead of looking for 10 million ounce deposits, let's look for 50 million ounces. Um, I got no base to say that, but, but that's kind of the order of magnitude of, of the prize, if you will, that we'll be looking for as we go to the central camp that has that overburden. Okay, so if I listen to some of the commentary from your existing shareholders there, I think with all, all uh, investors, you're going to the moon, so it's, that's good news. But um, I'm kind of keen to understand for new investors looking in at this thing, obviously cobalt price is doing what it is. There needs to be some price discovery. I get that. And you've explained you know, your, your, your primary focus being you know, obviously Idaho and the refinery. But with these assets, you talked about the possibility of bringing in partners or doing farm outs um, for these. Farmers themselves don't tend to bring a lot of cash in day one, but there may, there may be something. So what, what would you hope to be able to bring in in the near term in terms of some cash contribution? Obviously, retaining yeah. some carry would be brilliant, but what, what's the near term upside for you guys when cash is tight? That's, that's a great, great question. So, um, yeah, cash, cash is tight, and, and I don't want to dilute uh, right now, and yet I, I do feel you know quite confident that we can pull off our our $60 million financing, big 60 US, um, for the CapEx um, in the coming months. But, but that's still a few months away. We've got to get our feed contracts done and winnow down the uh, the lenders to one and do the site diligence. So in the meantime, we could be doing a lot of work. There's more network I'd like to do. There's some detailed engineering. There's some procurement activities. Um, so in order to do that, if I could, it's not much, right? A million, two million, three million dollars would go a long way to de-risking the project and to shortening that timeline. Um, to your point, though, the carry is is not insignificant, right? Because right now we own 100% of something that I get zero value for. So if I can bring in a partner uh, and they can they can push the asset forward because it is third run, then I'll have whatever 50, 40, 30% of, of something that has some real value, depending on on how we structure this. So it's it's a bit of both. Uh, we're we're not going to give it away. I, I would say I'm I'm a motivated motivated seller, but not a desperate seller because the holding costs here are nailed given all the work we've done. Yeah, Trey, you can't bring in Chinese money, can you? Nope. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And in fact, I got to say, the government uh, has been a great partner of ours. That's a bit of a segue, but um, you know, with with what we're doing, it's it's a critical mineral. 
Um, there's a lot of cooperation between the U.S. and a lot of its allies that to find a domestic surface of cobalt. We're right there. I got the former governor of Idaho on our board. Um, I've been talking to them about supporting our project. They, they put the two levels of government, provincial, federal, put a half a billion dollars into Ford about a month ago to help them electrify their Canadian operations. Um, and the idea was that we got to link our assembly plants to our Canadian mines. Well, there's a whole midstream there, of which I'm a part of, that needs to tie into that. So I've been working closely with the government. I know what they're thinking is. Um, China money probably wouldn't be advisable. Not going to fly. It's not going to fly. Um, yeah, and you're pretty close to that kind of automotive hub. It's a little bit further south of your assets for sure. And um, talk to me about the corporate structure because again, the difficulty for junior miners over going over a period, you know, of years when the markets are not working in their favour, it means the corporate structure gets a little bit untidy. So where are you at today? Yeah, if I want to talk specifically about the capital structure, we merged, one of our companies that we merged with was Australian. And, and so those of you who invest in Aussie companies know that Aussie juniors are accustomed to having hundreds of millions of shares out or a billion shares. That doesn't fly with U.S. institutions. And so after, you know, four mergers, we're sitting at 400 million shares. Unacceptable to a U.S. institution. And so that's on the horizon. I've looked at, you know, three dozen share consolidations and, and you'll know this. You never do that from a position of weakness. But if you can do a roll up, do a share consolidation on strength, on uh, an OEM partnership, on a financing construction announcement, you know you can ride that momentum and clean things up. So I would say stay tuned. That's uh, that's something I hope to address in the first half of next year. But again, as a shareholder, I'm not going to do that flippantly uh, or recklessly. We'll we'll do that when the time is right. And then when we talk about corporate structure, if you want to talk about people, um, that's been an interesting evolution as well. At inception, we were heavily geologically focused. Um, we had a, you know, a team, probably 12 employees, uh, geology, and we had, you know, 40 some contractors between two properties. Now that went down to one uh, in 2019 when things got quiet. And, and it's, it's harsh, but that's, you know, we all know that's the nature of the business. And now we're starting to build up on the other side. And it's not necessarily full time employees. You, you know, we got Mark Trevisiel, who ran the Glencore smelter, is going to build the project for us, a good process guy. And we're calling on people, you know, contract basis and whatnot. But if, if you got people that have operated, you know where the good bodies are. And we'll we'll build a, a proper corporate team through time. But again, the resources are scarce. And we uh, we sort of stitched these things together. We went again from probably 50 employees in the heyday down to seven. We might be sitting at eight and a half or nine today. And that's enough, right? We rely on our consultants. And, and when I have the resolve, actually not even the resolve, when I have the, the money in the bank to, to do the, uh, the, the expansion, then we'll build out a proper corporate team. Until then, uh, this this works, and, and this is uh, this we'll have to do. Yeah. How many other boards do you sit on? I uh, I sit on a charity board, and I just joined the board of Toronto Hydro. So I'm pretty focused uh, on on what I'm doing. The Toronto Hydro board, uh, there's a lot of parallels with what I'm seeing and what they're seeing. And, and so I, I thought, uh, as a as a, an electricity distributor, uh, their world is changing, and uh, they they thought that I could maybe play a role with their strategy. Right, right. And have you picked up many shares over the last three and a half years yourself? I mean, I don't mean the cheap stuff at the beginning. Yeah, I, I mean, at market stuff. Yes, I have. I've been buying uh, through it. I buy it up. I bought down. Uh, I'm consistently in the market, um, if not every quarter, and certainly each half. I've been I've been in the market, and I and I, I do want to actually. I take pride, maybe some solace. Uh, I, I never did get the cheap shares. Right, I came in after the company was formed. So my first year. In the company, I took my salary and invested alongside my shareholders at 50 cents. Uh, we're sitting at 14 today, and I've been buying ever since. So, you know, I don't know, a couple of million shares that I own today. Uh, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a Ross Beattie, not independently wealthy, 
what I have is meaningful to me, and I, I glad to keep building on that. Okay. Is there any? Um, sorry, are there many of the cheap stock holders left in the business, or have they all exited? I believe they are all long gone long into gone. cannabis and blockchain, and God knows. Hey, look, and and they, um, you know what? What I will say, and this has been an eye opener. I don't come from that world. Um, you know, when you when you do these companies, these these promotes. Um, Often it often falls flat, right? The the cheap the cheap seats are vacated, and uh, and everybody else is left holding the bag. There are a couple of stories. My sister company, formed by the same group, Standard Lithium, and and soon to be First Cobalt. Um, you know, maybe maybe you break the mold, right? Maybe if you bring the right management team in, you time it right, you get some assets. Then the people that are left, put a quote unquote, hold the bag, actually do get rewarded. And I I, I take a lot of pride in uh, you know we we had an interesting um, start to life with you know promoters. Getting the cheap stock, but um, I'm I'm looking ahead, not that long, six months, twelve months, eighteen months, and I, I think people that have uh, stuck it out through some tough times will be rewarded. I think we've got standard lithium coming on later this week, if not the beginning of next. Yeah. How are they doing? Yeah, great. Are they doing a good I, job? I, I've got a big, I'm a big fan of Robert. They're they're doing a very good job. Yeah, Mintex. Uh, he's a good CEO. Yeah, cerebral type. I'd like to think I am, maybe not as much as him. Uh, but just very focused, right? Uh, not not scattered. You know, you you can look at first cobalt and say you have been scattered, but I think we've been nimble. I'd like to put it that way. Uh, and we've done you know one asset at a time. We're not chasing three things, even though we got three. Uh, but you have to be in this business. And and to me, it's how do I surface value, and now it's how do I get the cash flow. And everything I can do to get us the cash flow has got to be priority. Right, and with refineries with a sixty million market, uh, sorry, sixty million capex, that for a fifty million dollar dollar market cap company. That's a tough ask. How do you do it? Yeah, the the plan here, if I um, and that's sixty million US and fifty million Canadian uh, or so. Oh boy! Yeah. Yes, you're um, right. The the government, yeah, yeah, governments will uh, governments. I, I think will will be there for us. I think we're we're going to get some support on that on that level. Um, this is going to be mostly debt. Uh, our you know our, our cash flows. Take your commodity price and all your assumptions. Uh, our feasibility study would say forty million. Pre-cash tax flow, you can stress test that, get that down to 22 uh, at spot prices. Um, nonetheless, there's a pretty good payback on the on the US dollar cash flows, uh, so we don't mix up our currencies. There's a pretty big payback, pretty quick payback. So, you know, I got to look at uh, servicing the debt. I got to look at the downside scenarios. I got a great CFO. Uh, I wouldn't anticipate raising more than maybe 10 million of that of the 60 in, in, in equity. But again, that's the last that's the last leg of the stool. Once you've underpinned the story and hopefully got a bit of a re-rate. So, so debt, debt focused um, five-year term and you link your supply contracts and your offtake with a trader in the background to backstop any excess supply. Um, there's going to be a very straightforward yet complex uh, web of partners behind the scenes to ensure that our revenues and our debt service payments are, are well aligned. Okay. But the, the feasibility study, the numbers look good. Um, you think that has you walking into conversations with some degree of confidence, does it? It does. Two things. One, one is the uh, the execution risk. The flow sheet is very straightforward. So we we've had a, a team of Glen, uh, Glencore technical folks, Murren Murren operators, Glencore Technology. So it's a global team working with Asenko and SGS and our own group. Everybody agrees this is a pretty straightforward flow sheet, and the feedstock is well known, right? We're not. This is not a new mine with new feedstock and an unknown head grade, and um, and and we're we're repermitting, or I guess we're amending permits to an existing facility. So. Um, yeah, that's that's all. I think that's all fairly straightforward. So the execution risk for us uh, really has to do with the management team, you know, building it right and and making sure that um, that you negotiate smart commercial contracts. So the devil might be in those details, 
Um, and, and, and if I look at sort of the margin opportunities, again, you've got uh, price discovery for Cobalt is not, it's not LME, it's fast market. So it's subscription based, but price discovery can be done at a, at a low cost. So, you know, we're not going to be caught our pants down uh, too much in, insofar as we know what the market basis is for feed purchases and for offtake. Okay, brilliant. Well, look, thanks for that run through. I mean, it's like I said, it's first time I've heard the, the, the story. Um, appreciate your candor. Um, and um, stay in touch. Pick up the phone. Let us know when uh, there's something to say. We'd be delighted to take that phone call. Okay, I'd love to. I'd love to. It's going to be a hopefully, hopefully pretty soon. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.